Good morning, everybody. Thanks, Dylan, for leading us in worship this morning. Thank you guys for all coming out here and worshiping the Lord together and beautiful day the Lord has made. Amen. Well, last time uh, when we were looking at the book of Acts, we looked at the lives of early Christians through the lens of Jesus' Great Commission. And just to review that, the Great Commission is found in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so within Jesus' great commission here are important themes that describe how he wants us to live as we follow him. So willfully submitting ourselves to his authority, going across the face of the earth to make disciples of all people groups, baptizing new disciples in the name of the triune God, teaching disciples to obey all of Jesus' commands, and depending on the eternal presence and power of Jesus, relying on that, abiding in Christ. And, and when we encounter difficult passages in the Bible, or specifically since we're in Acts, unusual passages, these Great Commission themes help us to understand what God was doing, how he was working among and through the early Christians. And last time we saw several of these themes tie together the lives of Paul and Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, if you'll remember. And this morning we're going to see how these themes tie together God's work among several unique people in the city of Ephesus. And as we look at what God was doing in their lives, hopefully we'll see what God wants to do in our lives as well. So if you've got your Bible with you, please open to Acts chapter 19, verse 1. Dear Lord, we just ask that uh, you would help us now as we read your holy word. You know what's going on in our lives right now, in our hearts, our minds. Lord, please just have mercy on us. Please give us grace. Meet us where we're at this morning and feed us what we need. We ask this, God, for our our greater joy in you and also for the glory of your name. We pray this in, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so let's read through Acts 19, 1 to 7, and then we'll go back through it. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. All 
So remember that Paul here is on his third mission trip, and he'd been traveling from town to town up north in Galatia, and he was encouraging the churches that he had started in, the, in that region. And, and then from Galatia in the north, he cuts southward across this region called uh, Asia, and he goes to the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus is where Aquila and Priscilla were, but the city was big enough that before seeing them, he, he came across these 12 disciples. And, man, commentators disagree. I probably read 10 commentaries on this thing. They disagree about whether or not these disciples were believers or not. And I was convinced they weren't. And then when I started writing my sermon, I totally flipped. And so just know that as I preach this. This morning, I'm going to argue that these 12 men were Christians. And I think they were very new Christians probably. And here are the three reasons why. First of all, the author Luke uses the word disciples to refer to Christians in 24 of the other instances in which disciples appear in the book of Acts. And so it would fit Luke's usage of the word disciple to understand these 12 men as Christians. If, if they weren't Christians, then this would be one, the one out of 25 times in which he uses that word to describe non-Christians. Uh, second, in verse 2, Paul asked these men if they received the Holy Spirit, quote, when they believed. And since Paul asked them what happened when they believed, which probably means when they believed in Jesus, he probably, it would, it would, it would, it would make sense that he was assuming they were Christians. And then third, in verse 2, Paul asked the, uh, these, these men if they received the Holy Spirit when they believed. And so, if, if Paul thought that... Uh, these men were merely disciples of John the Baptist, then it doesn't really make sense that he would ask them, he would ask them if they received the Spirit. Because only believers in Jesus receive as far as in, in the indwelling Spirit, right? Even in the Old Testament age, people were born again through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. However, it wasn't until the New Covenant age when the Holy Spirit came and indwelt people. And so Paul is, is asking these 12 men if, if one of two things happened to them. Uh, either he's asking them this, did the Holy Spirit fall on you with great power like he fell on the other believers in Jerusalem and in Samaria and in Caesarea? Or Paul is asking, is the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit obvious in your lives by your love for Jesus and by a desire to obey Jesus and by a display of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your lives? And their answer in verse 2 is no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Now, that's an interesting statement to make because if these were Jewish men, which they probably were, because they were uh, disciples of John the Baptist, uh, then they'd almost definitely heard of the Holy Spirit because even the Old Testament talks about the Holy Spirit. So likely what they mean is this, I think, no, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit to be received. Okay, So the Holy Spirit had not fallen on these men like he'd fallen on the other groups of Christians in Jerusalem and Samaria and Caesarea. And, and so the Holy Spirit was not indwelling them yet. And uh, these, these 12 Ephesian men thus, they were, they were similar to the Christians in Samaria. We're not going to recount that whole th passage in chapter 8 of Acts, but they were in a similar situation to the, the, the Christians in Samaria who had been saved, however, who had not received the Holy Spirit yet. Um, then in verse 3, Paul asks these men, if you haven't received the Holy Spirit, 
or been baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, then what were you baptized into? And they tell him into John's baptism. And that's John the Baptist, remember, that's who we're talking about. So, so this shows then, this is, these were a really, this was a unique situation. Um, these were uh, a, a unique, this was a unique people group in the story of redemptive history. Th- these were men who had been followers of John the Baptist before Jesus came along. However, they weren't with the Jews in Jerusalem at Pentecost to receive the Holy Spirit with the other Jewish Christians. And so these 12 men represented a unique people group, just like the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, just like the Samaritan Christians in Samaria, and just like the Gentile Christians in Caesarea had. And just like the Holy Spirit fell upon those groups of Christians with great power, so also the Holy Spirit would fall on these men. First, though, Paul explains to them why they need to be baptized again. And verses, verse 4 says this, And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And so these men had been baptized by John the Baptist, and, and they were taught to believe in the Messiah who was to come. But now in redemptive history, Jesus had come, and he had commanded his disciples to be baptized now at the Great Commission in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And since he had done that, they should now be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then verse 5 says, On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And just like the apostles Peter and John had laid hands on the, uh, the Christians in Samaria to give them the Holy Spirit, so also the apostle Paul lays his hands on these men to give them the Holy Spirit. And verse six says, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So, so just as we saw in Jerusalem, and Samaria, the, the Holy Spirit falls on this new people group with unprecedented power in this new covenant age of the gospel of Jesus. And in fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, if you remember in Acts chapter 2, they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, which, which probably means that they were prophesying and speaking in tongues. They were, they were declaring the glories of God's salvation, which is what is described as happening in Jerusalem when the Jewish Christians believed. So, how then, with a passage like this, can we accurately and responsibly apply these seven verses to our lives? Here are three life applications that, that I was led to, to, com- to, to conclude. First, more important than however you felt the Holy Spirit when you first believed is the Holy Spirit's ongoing work in your life. Okay. More important than however you feel, felt or didn't feel the Holy Spirit when you first trusted in Jesus is the present experience of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Okay. God saves his people as they trust in the gospel of Jesus in all sorts of different circumstances. Some of you trusted in Jesus when you were a, a child praying at home with your parents. And, and some of you First, believe the gospel when you're at church camp or a youth group event. Some of you put your trust in Jesus when you were going through a very difficult time in your life. And some of you put your faith in Jesus when you were reading the Bible and you sensed the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit calling you to Jesus. Whatever the circumstances were when you first trusted in Jesus, God did a miracle in making you born again. 
Okay. So if you feel like your testimony isn't exciting, if it's not dramatic, it is exciting if you love Jesus Christ, because that's a miracle. Okay. So don't devalue the wonderful way God called you to himself and saved you. You know, often when I'm interviewing a person who wants to be baptized or join the church, he or she cannot pinpoint the day and time when he or she first turned to Jesus in faith. And, and while I think there is a clear moment when, when God pulls a person over from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, what I'm more concerned with is, are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ today? Because if you've been a Christian for a little while, these are the things that matter. Can you or others notice the Lord's work in you? Can, do you desire to know the Lord? Do you desire to talk to the Lord and to celebrate the Lord with a desire that you did not have before you trusted in Jesus? Do you hunger at all for the word of the Lord? Are, are you learning how to obey Jesus' commands in your life? Is that something you want to do? Are you sorrowful when you sin against God and against people? Are, are you repenting or turning away from sinful habits and from relationships? Is, is the Holy Spirit producing in your life the spiritual fruit listed in Galatians 5.22? Because this is what Jesus wants for you. This is why Jesus died for you. And, and this is what Jesus can do in your life because he loves you and he's capable of doing that. See, we don't, we don't need dramatic conversion stories. Praise God for those. But what we really need is God the Holy Spirit to live in us and to work in us. And the Holy Spirit lives in you and works in you if you've been born again. I, when I say that, I, I didn't say that the Holy Spirit lives in you if your parents were Christians. I didn't say the Holy Spirit lives in you if you've gone to church your whole life or if you've served in a number of different leadership positions in the church. The Holy Spirit lives in you and works in you if God has made you born again through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greatest hero you need. And he is the one who can save you and he is the one who sent the Holy Spirit to live in you. So just like uh, Paul asked these 12 Ephesian disciples, is there evidence in your desires, your thoughts, your actions that the Holy Spirit is living in you? If not, then I encourage you to talk that out with some mature Christians about why that is, right? Because I don't want you to just look at this text and be like somebody who looks in a mirror and see their hair is all disheveled and then they say, oh, I messed up and then walks away. We want to look in the mirror and then help get our hair right and then walk away, Right? And so, in the same way, I encourage you not to just say, well, yeah, I don't have the Holy Spirit. That stinks for me. What's for lunch? I want you to say, man, I should think about that. I should, you know, if, if I'm in that position, it's like, hmm, I, I should bounce that off some people I trust and say, why do I or don't I feel the Holy Spirit in my life or see evidences of his work in my life? Or maybe they're there and I, I can't see him and I need someone else to point them out. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, the Apostle Paul writes this to Christians. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, 
you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Remember that Acts 2, the image that, that happened there where the, all of a sudden the flames, which represent the Holy Spirit, are now resting above the heads of the believers. The flame was in the temple, but now in the new covenant we are the temple. The Holy Spirit indwells us. And so Paul reminds us, do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God who, who, who's within you, whom you have, who is from God? So that means you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So if you trust in Jesus Christ, who is crucified and resurrected, if you trust in him for salvation, then the Holy Spirit lives in you, and you need to ask him often to help you obey him. Okay? Um, the verse, what does it say? Uh, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. It is God who does this doesn't mean that we don't have any responsibility to, to, to act, uh, to discipline ourselves or to seek God, but we desperately need the power of God and to acknowledge that to God, that God, I need your help. <laughs> I need your help. Um, ask the Lord to give you a greater desire for him. Ask him to help us, you know, remember the things that he's done. Ask him to, to change the way that you think and act so that your life will Come into alignment with, with his will. Um, and ask that God the Holy Spirit will fall afresh on you with power. Ask him to fill you with love and zeal. And the Puritans called this word unction. They had this funny word unction. This anointing from God. That God, would you give me unction as I tell other people about Jesus and want to live for you? God, would you manifest your presence in my life with power as I'm living in accordance with your word. You see that? Those go together. It's not like God's going to manifest his presence in your life with power, but you're not going to be living in accordance with his, God, his word because the word is the sword of the spirit. So they go together. You want your life manifesting the, pow the power of, of the Holy Spirit. That's always going to happen in accordance with his word. And if you're here, or if, um, but you don't trust in Jesus, but you're searching for the truth. I would think that's, that's why, I would hope that's why you're here. I would encourage you to take the step of praying to God and asking him to reveal the truth to you. But then you have to do your part too, which is seeking the truth. And I would say this, if you haven't read one of the four gospels in the Bible about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you should seek the truth by doing that. And as you do that, ask God to reveal himself to you through his word, which he says is living and active. And I hope that if you're seeking God with all your heart, then you will find Jesus Christ to be the one true God, the only God you will find who meets you right now where you're at in all the brokenness and messiness of your life, who offers you forgiveness and grace and love and a friendship with himself right where you're at. Second life application here is a question. Does this passage teach that speaking in tongues and prophesying ought to be normative for all Christians? And the reason I'm tackling this one right now is because it's, it's the last time in Acts that tongues is mentioned. And I would just encourage you to listen to the, the whole answer here. In my opinion, um, neither from this passage nor from the book of Acts can one conclude that speaking in tongues or prophesying ought to be normative for all Christians. 
And at the very same time, one also cannot conclude from this passage or from the book of Acts that tongues and prophesying have ceased. So looking strictly at the book of Acts right now, one cannot deduce that God commands tongue speaking and prophesying of all Christians or that he has declared ceasing of tongues and prophesying. Okay. So let me explain here in three sub-points why tongue speaking and prophesying do not appear to be normative for all Christians according to the book of Acts. First, nowhere in this passage or in the book of Acts does God command Christians to speak in tongues or prophesy. Uh, speaking in tongues occurs only three times in the book of Acts. And in each instance, the author describes what is happening. He does not prescribe or command that it should happen in our lives. Uh, Joel's prophecy in Acts 2 says that speaking in tongues and prophesying would accompany the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the last days. However, Joel's prophecy does not command. There's not a, an imperative in there. There's not a command commanding all Christians to do these things. Second, uh, John Piper notes that Acts records at least nine other conversion stories, but never again mentions a two-step sequence with tongues. So Acts does not give us a uniform sequence of, of these events that ought to occur in the life of every believer, besides the fact that repentance and faith is the gift of the Holy Spirit, and after believing, Christians should be baptized in Jesus' name and seek to obey his commands. That's what's crystal clear. And third, commonalities between the tongue-speaking passages in Acts indicate that these were unique situations in redemptive history. According to Acts, Christian speaking in tongues happened in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, in Caesarea at Cornelius' house, and in Ephesus with these disciples of John the Baptist. And even though the passage about the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit in Acts 18, it doesn't mention tongues, we're going to throw that in here, just thinking, okay, maybe it happened there too. But several unique components tie together these four scenes. In each instance, the gospel was preached to and believed by a distinct people group. Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, and then a small group of Jews who were not in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. In all of these instances, God's power was visibly experienced among a group of Christians, never in a private setting. Also, the Holy Spirit fell on these groups of people when there was one of the apostles present with them. So in Jerusalem, all of the apostles were present. In Samaria, Peter and John were present. In Caesarea, Peter was present. And in Ephesus, Paul, Ephesus, Paul was present. Why is that significant? Well, it has to do with the reality of the church in the first century. As Christians were spreading among many different cultures and peoples, many of whom were enemies of each other before they trusted in Jesus, it was crucial for God to unite these people. And he did so by having the apostles who were still alive be present with each people group when they received the Holy Spirit. This was in order to validate for them and everybody else that they were trusting in the same Savior. They were believing the same gospel. They were indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. They were now part of the same family of God through faith in Jesus. That appears to be why God waited to pour out the Holy Spirit until one of the apostles got to, there with, to be with physically those people groups. So, so the instances of tongue speaking in Acts don't appear to be random occurrences in private settings. 
Rather, it appears that each instance of tongue speaking recorded in the book of Acts occurred as the Holy Spirit worked in an unprecedented way to fill a distinct people group with his presence and power. Given that those three factors, that in the book of Acts, Christians are not commanded to speak in tongues, uh, that many conversion stories are recorded without a two-step tongue sequence, and that tongue speaking always happens among distinct people group in the presence of an apostle, one cannot, I don't think, conclude from the books of Acts that speaking in tongues and prophesying ought to be normative for all Christians. Yet, at the same time, nowhere in the book of Acts does God declare that the age of tongue speaking among Christians has ceased. Okay? So, I would say this. To make an argument for the, either the continuation of tongue speaking or the ceasing of tongue speaking, it seems that one would have to mainly rely on other texts where the new, uh, in the New Testament where the authors speak to this topic explicitly rather than implicitly. Again, just because something happened to somebody in the pages of the Bible does not in itself mean that God promises that will happen for you or that God is commanding for that to happen for you. To know what God commands we must read what God commands in Scripture. And that's why as we read through the book of Acts, we have to be very careful uh, between the, the, the distinction between is, is the author describing he, something here or is he prescribing it? Or if it's just describing something, are there other places in the New Testament where this is commanded? And for our purposes today, we're, we're not going to dive into that. We're just looking at the book of Acts alone. Finally, our third application from today's text is this. Don't assume that the Holy Spirit is only at work in your life when you feel his presence. Don't assume that God is only working in your life when you feel him, even though it's nice to feel him. Okay. Uh, Rich Mullins was a Christian songwriter and musician. I remember him saying once after one of his concerts, uh, an excited fan came up to him after the concert and thanked him for the amazing concert because he could totally feel the holiness of God during the concert. And Rich, who was actually a very compassionate person, replied and said, I'm glad you liked the concert, but I don't think you felt the holiness of God tonight. The holiness of God isn't a feeling you feel at a concert. The holiness of God is shoveling the driveway of the widow across the street during a snowstorm. Now, imagine, right, that probably burst his bubble a little bit. Um, and I don't think, that, knowing Rich Mullins, I don't think he was saying that the presence of the Holy Spirit couldn't be felt during the concert. I think Rich's point was that becoming like Jesus and living out his holiness in our lives often can't be identified by an incredible feeling we feel. It's identified by our joyful obedience to God. Yes, God made us emotional creatures, and yes, hopefully, we will have emotional and moving encounters with God. However, we must not think that God is not with us or working through us when we don't feel anything. When we're scared or anxious or depressed or beat down, we must not think that that's an indicator that the Holy Spirit is far from us or that God is not at work in our lives. Following God doesn't always feel good. Often it doesn't feel good. 
being made fun of for your faith doesn't feel good when you're in junior high or high school or at work or in elementary school. But Jesus says that you should consider yourself blessed when that happens. Confessing a sin, you know, humbling yourself before your wife and kids and confessing a specific sin to them doesn't, doesn't get you pumped up, <laughs> but you're obeying God when you do that. For, forgiving somebody who has hurt you is extremely difficult sometimes and doesn't always feel good, but it's a very holy, Christ-like thing to do. And serving your spouse by doing the dishes or by cleaning up vomit in the middle of the night doesn't always feel awesome, but it is a wonderful way to worship the Lord and to love your family. And I would say Cindy's probably the primary vomit cleaner in my house, so, you know, I'll give her credit. I'm not going to take more credit than is due. We've had our share of that this week. Um, and so, you know, in our lives, we thank God for those mountaintop moments. I don't know, maybe, I would think that in a room full of people like this where, um, if you're believers, you can think back at specific moments. If, if you think of your life as a journey when you had mountaintop experiences with the Lord, man, like that was a big encounter with God for me that I always look back to and think of. And, and we thank God for those when we felt him closely and when we saw his glory in a specific way. And at the same time, we've got to remember that, that the most spirit-filled person ever, Jesus Christ, is described in the Bible as being a man of sorrows, a man of suffering. In fact, it was when Jesus did not sense the presence of God the Father that his holiness and love were most vividly displayed when he was crucified at the cross. His agony was more horrible than we'll ever know, but it's bizarre. It says it was for the joy set before him that he went to the cross. It was through his act of obedience on the cross, it was through his act of obedience in, in rising from the dead that you and I can be forgiven of our sins, that you and I can be reconciled to God, no longer enemies, but friends with God, adopted into his family as his sons and daughters. What an awesome savior Jesus is for doing that for us even when it felt horrible. And so, it's, man, it's certainly a great thing to ask God to give us a fresh sense of his presence and power in our lives. However, don't be more infatuated with feeling God's presence than with becoming holy like he is holy. Don't feel like uh, you need to sense God's special moving in your heart before you are ready to obey the commands he's clearly given you in Scripture. Otherwise, you probably won't ever obey because you'll be waiting your whole life. Oh, I feel, I felt the Lord moving me to forgive that person. No, you don't. Maybe you do. Some, I mean, some of you maybe, I don't know. But hopefully you don't wait until you feel something 10 years after you've been harboring a bitter grudge against somebody. Hopefully you're like, ah, this stinks, but I need to get right with this person and forgive them. I think that's where the Holy Spirit moves and that's evidence that the Holy Spirit's in you. Um, the Apostle Paul writes this. He wants to participate in Jesus' sufferings, to become like him in his death, so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, that's an important part of the gospel proclamation to hear because what it does is 
it calls Jesus' true sheep to himself. His true sheep hear his voice and they want it. They hear it. We don't do anybody any favors by saying, oh man, following Jesus, it's, it's the easiest thing you'll ever do. And your life's gonna be just so much easier. Hopefully, following Jesus, you will have a life of joy knowing that your greatest enemies have been defeated in Jesus Christ. However, at the same time, don't forget the command. Jesus commands you to pick up your cross and follow him, right? Um, so when we read about the way the Holy Spirit worked in an instance like today's passage, our takeaway shouldn't be, man, I wish the Holy Spirit still worked like he did in the first century. I still wish he worked like that today. Okay, rather, because he does. Okay, that's what I mean. Rather, our takeaway should be, how, what does this say about the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit? What does this passage say? How gracious is God the Father that he would send his only Son to die for sin, our sin, so that we might be rescued and have eternal life? And how unfathomably kind is God the Son, Jesus Christ, for leaving his heavenly throne and coming to earth to live a sinless life, to be tortured in his death for our sin in our place, and then rise from the dead so that we could be united to him in that victory. How kind is Jesus for doing that? And how kind is the Holy Spirit for granting us faith and repentance and for making us born again by the power of Jesus' finished work and for living inside us permanently and, and for sealing our salvation for us until we meet Jesus face to face. How kind is the Holy Spirit for that? What a God we serve who not only saves those who trust him and he saves them for eternity, but who also manifests his power in our lives and transforms us into his likeness by his Holy Spirit and by his word. So as we, again, I would say, man, if you read a passage like this, me, I would just encourage you to say, God, I want to experience more of your Holy Spirit, more of your spirit-powered obedience and joy in my life. May we beg God for that. Is that a prayer you pray? May, may we trust that God is, is working in us as we seek to obey him, even when we don't feel good. Um, and, and may God, who is gracious and who is the giver of every good gift, may he, who has anointed prayer as a means by which he pours out his grace, May he give to us joy, supernatural joy, supernatural hope, supernatural love and faith in him that goes far deeper than the ups and downs of our natural lives on earth. That's what we need. This is all great news. This morning, you guys, we want to celebrate who Jesus is and what he's done for us as we take the Lord's Supper together. And, and then we also want to celebrate what he promises to do in the future. So as the, as the servers come forward, let's just take a few minutes of silent prayer to confess any sin to God that maybe we're, we know is hindering our fellowship with him. Ask Holy Spirit to, to, to reveal any sins that we need to confess. And then thank God for what he's done to demonstrate his love to us. And, and if you're not a believer 
but you would like to be one, I encourage you now, this would be a great time to pray silently to Jesus. Tell him that you believe he is God if you believe he is God. Tell him that you, you, you believe he died for sin and he rose again and that you're turning from sin and trusting in him for salvation. And if you do that, please let somebody know ASAP because we want to celebrate you, with you and, and baptize you in the near future just like Jesus commanded us to. So let's just take a few minutes now and have a little quiet time with the Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that you're a God, you are the God who loves us and cares about us, who beckons us to come to you to find grace and help in our time of need. Thank you, God, that you don't offer us only forgiveness, you offer us purity too. You promise if we confess those sins, God, that we, we are cognizant of as, and uh, that uh, you 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 forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness in our fellowship with you and obviously eternally we know God that you've already imputed to us the righteousness of Christ we thank you for that and just in this moment today as we begin this month of June this new season as we head into summer Lord we just want to thank you God for who you are what you've done in our lives and we just ask that Holy Spirit you would help Help us to keep you at the forefront of our, of our lives. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.